Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. There are many people buying raw land and flipping it, but there can be even more profit when you buy the land, entitle it for another use, and then resell it. There are a lot of infill properties to add incredible value to by entitling it for another use and then selling to a developer. Mike Marshall, owner of Telosa Property Group, was a city planner who learned the ropes of the entitlement process and is now helping others with the process and creating partnerships with other investors. So today we have with us a fascinating guy in the land business with a very, very tightly defined niche, which is always fascinating to me. Uh, He's the owner of Telosa Property Group, and they work with seasoned investors to help them through the entitlement process and therefore add great value. His name is Mike Marshall. Mike, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You got it. And, uh, you know, thanks again. You know, I it's been hard putting this thing together. And here we are. So, you know, before we get into the cool stuff and like how you wound up in such a great niche, where are you from originally? And, and you know, what was it like uh, as a kid? Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in Northern California, a um, town called Petaluma. Um, that's where I was born. And, uh, kind of went uh, to early education and school in a little nearby town called Rohnert Park. So these are like little 30 to 50,000 person communities, you know, in Northern California. So yeah, so I, I grew up there and then in the middle of high school ended up being in uh, Southern California um, in Burbank. So that was a big cultural shift, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and so, um, but early on, you know, um, I kind of had like a, a real estate experience as my, my dad owned um, a few properties with his, um, his partner, a guy that he worked with. And so a lot of my early real estate experience was uh, picking up shingles as my dad was re-roofing properties or, or helping painting, you know, rooms as they were getting rentals ready and stuff like that. And so a lot of my early experience was, you know, kind of helping dad along some of those things that he was working on his properties. And no wonder why you got into land. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that, boy, that is, you know, that is a cultural shift back then. You know, I saw you on YouTube and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that you have achieved the age that I have achieved, but, you know, you're you're not 20 either. So so back then, the difference between Rohnert Park and Petaluma and Burbank, oh my goodness. Uh, Why did you guys move down to Burbank? We had family down here, yeah, you know, and so it was some family was down here, and my my mom's sister, and so it was like um, just kind of over the years trying to keep family together, kind of thing, and so we ended up moving down here, you know, and um, like you said, a big, big cultural shift, that's for sure. Then uh, I eventually ended up going to school in way up northern California kind of getting away from the hustle and bustle of Southern California, only to return to Southern California in my professional life, you know? So I've been up and down the state of California, you know, um, over the years, that's for sure. What, uh, where'd you go to school? At Humboldt State. It's in Arcata, California, near Eureka. So it's about an hour south of the Oregon border, right on the coast. I I thought that's what you're going to say. They recently, well, they either recently or are going to rebrand the name of the school 
And this isn't exactly right, but the gist of it is 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 kind of right. It's going to be like Humboldt School of Technology or Humboldt School of something. They're rebranding it um, because they're they're kind of focusing on you know tech kind of stuff. Well, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because my my kids are co- like college ages, so we're kind of dialed into that kind of stuff. And where do you live now? So right now I live um, in Southern California, about like an hour north of downtown LA. And um, but my family is really on the move. Within the next month, we're going to be moving out to Texas. Actually. Oh my goodness, man! You're making the you're, you're taking the plunge with everybody else. Where in Texas? Uh, east of Dallas, about a half hour or so east. And why? Um, a whole lot of reasons. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is just. Um, Kind of just a, a change of pace, I think, is a lot of it. You know, the way that it all works out and able to spend more time with the family. So that's always a positive. Um, and then also kind of that area is in a place in terms of development that is very similar to where I live now, but only like, you know, in the 1990s, you know. And so it, there's a lot of opportunity out there for the type of business that I do. And so that's something that's really appealing as well. I see. All right. And I've tortured you enough with the personal questions. I only have one more quick one just because I because I, you know, I was just I have a feeling very close to where you live a couple weeks ago. What what town an hour north of uh, L.A.? Uh, there's a city called Santa Clarita. It's about yep. 200,000 people. Is that yeah. Magic Mountain? That's exactly it. Yeah. If you know Magic Mountain, then you know where Santa Clarita is. That's kind of the, the map point. Yeah. Okay, we we drive. We have driven through there a million times over the years from NorCal down there because uh, my wife's uh, parents and family live down in the the valley. So we we've driven through there. So how did you? So what's so fascinating to me, uh, Mike, about what you do is that you know there's a lot of guys that are flipping land and that, that come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and nuances. There's a zillion gurus that are teaching it. And there's, you know, a, a lot of guys that are, you know, kind of crawling around and, you know, trying to reinvent and sending out mailers and what have you. And, you know, some inevitably are very successful and others, you know, maybe not, blah, blah, blah. But what you do is specifically around, you know, consulting with people, getting land entitled. If I'm correct and if I am, how did you wind up in such a tight niche? Yeah, you know. I think what it was is that, you know, I had that early real estate experience and, you know, I always knew that I wanted to kind of gravitate towards real estate, especially coming out of college. But at the same time, I needed a job too, you know? And so at that time, you know, I had a a degree in something completely different and I ended up um, getting a job with the city um, that I was living in at the time. And I was in a completely different field, but I was always still interested in real estate. And I figured out that there was this whole other world uh, called urban planning. And I kind of knew of it on the periphery, you know, but as I was working for that city, I learned more and more about it. And I really figured out, well, this is like the closest thing that I could get to in terms of real estate and still have, you know, a W-2 job to kind of, you know, help feed me and everything like that, you know? And so I eventually gravitated over towards working in the planning division um, for that city. And then over the years, um, ended up working in cities here in Southern California, then also out in Texas at one point, and then moved back to California. So I've been back and forth to Texas before. And, you know, throughout that time, you know, just um, the whole world of planning is really all about the entitlement process, you know, and the entitlement process being kind of 
the first of three main stages of the development process. You know, you have the entitlement phase, then you maybe have the engineering phase where you're getting like your grading permits and things like that. And then you have your building permit phase, which is what most people are more familiar with. So interesting. Okay. And so you kind of got your your toe in the bathtub that way. So still you you ultimately you're helping people get it entitled and focusing on that first piece of it. Why is that as opposed to, you know, building or, you know, or the full, you know, 180 degrees cycle or how did you identify something so specific? Well, I think what it was is that over time, you know, you're sitting there working for a city and you're seeing it from that perspective all the time. But at the same time, I still wanted to be, you know, on my own investing, doing my own my own thing, essentially. And so I was always looking for opportunity, you know, within the niches and everything that I was, you know, doing on a day-to-day basis. And so what I really recognized was that there was a disconnect, you know, there was a disconnect between local jurisdictions and investors and property owners, and that a lot of these investors and property owners didn't understand zoning and land use enough to be able to see where the opportunities were. And so what I would do is I'd start looking at everything from a different point of view. And I started seeing where those those gaps were, where those opportunities are. Because, you know, in real estate, you know, we make money because of the inefficiencies that exist in the marketplace. And the same is true with zoning. You know, there's inefficiencies in zoning and land use that are present and where you can actually take advantage of that. And so what I ended up doing is this kind of more self-education on those kind of opportunities. And over time, I started having people come to me as I was working for the city saying, hey, look, I have a project that I'm working on in another city. You know, is that something that you could help out with? And so over time, just built like a consulting kind of business on the side. And then at the same time, I started doing my own land investing. And then eventually just built to the point where I was able to, to move on from that city job and, and do it on my own. Simple and ingenious. What are the, you could say, well, first of all, when was that, that you stepped out on your own? Um, you know, that was not, not too long ago. That was just over a year ago. So it's not, not it hasn't been too long. I really held on as long as I possibly could, you know, and, um, and like I said, helping people on other projects and things like that. And um, was doing that. And then at the same time, I mean, I was like, you know, doing a lot of the outreach stuff in terms of like our website and, and working and, and speaking at different, you know, podcasts or speaking at different live events. And so I was doing all that stuff while at the same time, you know, working the, the job and uh, just trying to like hold on to the bitter end to where it was at the point where it just cost me too much to stay. Got it. Oh, perfect, man. So what is the most typical, if there is such a thing, uh, or you can answer, what are the the most common situations where there are inefficiencies in zoning? So where I guess, you know, you re-categorize is obviously the wrong word, but you know what I mean? So is it, yeah. is it going from commercial to residential or what? what is the opportunity typically? Yeah, the most, one of the most clear ones is what I refer to as underutilized properties. And, and those would be the classic example I would give is that if you have a single family house that's existing today, but it happens to be in a commercial zoning designation, that is an inefficient situation because what's happening on that single family property is that it's not developed to its full capability, its full potential. Its full potential is going to be a commercial building or maybe a multifamily building or whatever it happens to be. But the end result is that it's an inefficient situation. So, for example, 
we've gone and bought a property that was an old single family house that was, you know, essentially boarded up. We bought that property and we're able to turn it into a 14 unit condo project. And that kind of situation happens all over the place. And it's just because the current zoning allows for more than what's actually on the property today. And the way that that works or how that happens is that, you know, single family homes are built out as its original development. And then over time, you know, there becomes more and more pressure to develop or for more and more pressure for commercial uses or for multifamily uses or whatever. And then the city will actually go in and rezone the property to a commercial use, for example. And then at that point, you still have that single family house that's sitting there, though. They're not going to go tear down that house. They're going to let it sit there. And so that house is grandfathered in. But again, there's an inefficiency that exists because it's just not meeting its full potential. Makes a ton of sense. Let me let me be a devil's advocate. And it's, it's not it's not really be a devil's advocate. It's just I don't really personally understand and have that much knowledge. But if you're going in and it's a single family home, but zoning permits a 14 unit, you know, 14 condos, let's say, what's the difference between going in and just buying a piece of land with that's not improved, has nothing on it and doing the same thing? Why is there such a value add in that scenario? Do you understand my question? Yeah. I mean, the vacant property like that is not is generally not going to be available in these kind of settings. So the setting that I'm talking about is more of an urbanized setting. For infill. Sure. Yeah. So it's more of an infill project than it is an actual like a rural development or something that's on the fringe, for example. So it's just a different kind of opportunity. So in an infill environment, that's where this really plays out really well. And so it's almost like it's not even well, the value of the land is, isn't even necessarily the issue. It's just the different use for how it's being currently. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're allowing for another use to come in there where it wasn't one there. And that's 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 distinctly different than a rezoning opportunity. A rezoning is a little bit different. Well, and then again, you are, if I think about it, you're flipping it. So you're not the one, if I understand you correctly, you're not getting into the, I mean, you're not developing anyway. You're just basically flipping it to somebody else that could hit a home run and go build 14 condos, what have you. And you're just making the spread on what basically buying and flipping the land, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're still flipping the land. The difference is, is our value add is in getting these entitlements in place. And so- the reason why that's valuable is because it's adding certainty to a picture where there wasn't certainty before. A builder or developer, they may want to build that you know, 14 unit condo project, but they know they have to go through this entitlement process. Their preference most times would be to buy an entitled project and then just go and go vertical on it because that's where they make their money. That's where their bread and butter is. Now, there's a lot of developers that will do the entitlement process, but there's a lot that won't or would prefer not to. So someone like myself could come in and, again, add value through getting those approvals, have an entitlement package, essentially, that we hand over upon sale. And that's where the value is created because we've added certainty. Why won't a developer want to deal with the entitlement process? Is it just too cumbersome? Is it too costly? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it could be any one of those things, but most often the case is, is that it's just a cumbersome process. It takes a long time in some instances, um, especially out here, like in California. It's just not where their wheelhouse is. You know, they rather focus on you know their ground up construction projects rather than spending the time you know in the entitlement phase. Now, 
don't get me wrong, there are developers, there are a lot of them out there that definitely do go through the entitlement process, especially like large home builders like, you know, Beezer or DR Horton, Lennar, whoever. They'll certainly have that team in place, but especially for your smaller, more regional builders, they're, they'd much rather get an entitled project and run with that. Interesting. So are you, are a lot of guys doing what you do and, you know, they're just going, buying a piece of land, getting it entitled and flipping it to developers? It certainly happens. Um, it definitely happens. But when we say a, a lot, I'd say no, definitely not a lot. It's again, as you pointed out at the beginning, it's a very nuanced and very niche, you know, uh, approach and niche strategy. Um, it certainly does happen. And it can be really, really profitable in a lot of instances, too, you know. And we've been talking about construction projects, but there's ways to use entitlements on existing commercial development, for example, that can add a huge amount of value just by changing the use of the property. What would be an example of that? One of the best examples, you see it a lot of times like in maybe like urbanized settings where you have like industrial um, buildings that get converted over to like residential lofts or something like that. You'll see that happen. Um, or maybe it gets converted to office space. But one of the more interesting examples I've seen was um, in the community where I live, there was a commercial building that was a furniture store at one time. That furniture store left. That building was vacant for probably the course of like maybe eight to 12 months. And so they were having a hard time finding a tenant. A buyer comes in and they end up going through the entitlement process. It was like a conditional use permit, I believe, to be able to allow for what was ultimately a flooring store. It's just weird to imagine why a city may require that kind of permit for a flooring store, but for whatever reason, that was what their requirement was. And so a lot of people would maybe be turned off by that process, but this investor comes in, buys the property, gets the property um, entitled, and then goes and sells it off to like a lumbered liquidators, basically. And in that process, you know, they ended up buying it for think like 650 goes through the entitlement process and about four to six months later they end up selling it for i think it was like just under 1.2 wow so i'm gonna ask a i'm gonna ask a question i already asked but just to be like just incredibly obvious about it just to, to make sure i understand so you know there's this whole industry as you know of you know land gurus out there guys that teach people how to flip land and they do mailers and they'll buy you know a place in the theoretically in the path of progress in a in a growing state but maybe more rural doesn't have to be but you know that's a pretty common thing where they could buy a piece of land for literally as little as a thousand dollars and then maybe and then they'll, they'll do a mailer and they'll get somebody that somehow their husband died and they're 85 and they don't want to screw around and continue the paying the taxes they buy it and and then they 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 sell it they basically flip and there's so there's an industry there's an industry of that that you know lots and lots of people do that so you made it clear that not that many people this isn't necessarily an industry where people have systematized it taught it exactly packaged it like these gurus is that correct or it just isn't that common i'm just trying to get a sense of this in my yeah. mind I think there's a couple things Two or one thing is that it's certainly just not that common. And I think part of it is because it's, it's nuanced. It's a different like knowledge set, but also the thing is, is that the rules are different in every jurisdiction that you go to, you know? Um, and so that makes it harder to systematize. It makes it harder for any of these um, guru types that you're talking about 
to actually create this, you know, plug and play type of system into it. So I guess maybe to like toot my horn a little bit, a little bit is just that it's, it's just more advanced, you know, it's, it's more, it's more moving towards a realm of, um, forgive me for saying it's just a little bit more professional. Um, it's a little bit more in the, the, the more professional side of uh, the um, real estate business in general. So you're pushing towards like developer type of realm a little bit, but you're stopping short, obviously, of being the one that's actually building it. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a few of those things that come in. But the main thing is just because it, it takes a, a level of education and commitment that maybe a lot of people don't have or not are not willing to go through. But my thing has always been is that like I'm not looking for everybody. I'm just looking for a handful of people that that this resonates with because my goal is to be able to really have a, a group of people that I'm working with into the future on doing deals together. So there's a lot of people that are in the land that land flipping business. You know, um, I'm I know a lot of them. A lot of the people I work with come out of that land business. But the people I work with are people that have done that standard land flipping model for quite some time. They recognize the competition that's kind of growing in that, and they realize that they have to kind of up their skill set to be able to kind of diversify themselves, you know, in going forward into the future. So they're not leaving their land business behind, but they are looking at ways to kind of um, set themselves apart from everybody else. Dude, it's like it's like your land flipping 2.0. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it really is. It, it's just it's just the next step in a progression, you know. And, and the cool thing is that, you know, it's not a scenario where somebody has to keep progressing and then be the builder developer type of person either. That That's not where I advocate people necessarily going. There's these little kind of pockets in, in all of it where you can really establish yourself and, and have an, an ongoing business, a whole career sitting in these kind of nice pockets. Hmm. Wow. And so you said a minute ago, you were saying, you know, people to, to do deals with. So I'm trying to get my head around what you're currently doing is is consulting. You work with people that are doing this. Are you also partnering with people in, you know, that maybe put capital together? I'm trying to get the scope yeah. of, go, you go ahead. No, absolutely. That's correct. You know, so we try to pull, I'll try to pull different people together, right? So a lot of what I'm doing, like I do all the entitlements and the consulting stuff, that is for sure. But then the other part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to build and bring the pieces together. So I'll pull like a funding person in and then I'll also get somebody that's maybe even stronger than I am in terms of the acquisition side. And then maybe I have a broker partners that are really working on the disposition side. And so what I'm doing is I'm really looking at like JV type of arrangements, you know, where the concept being that as a team, we can do more than what I can do on my own. And, and that's really what I'm focused on. Awesome, man. And what, what are, give, give me some numbers, like what's average size of deal? Inevitably, there's, it's always hard to extrapolate an average, but just like, like some examples. Yeah. I mean, like on a, a simple or like a more simple, basic subdivision type of project that we might work on, that's like in a, on the urban fringe, right? Where there's kind of some subdivisions, but there's still some agricultural land out there and we're going to do a residential subdivision. Something like that might be, you know, $100,000 in acquisition and then through the subdivision process, at minimum, we're trying to double that value, you know? And so at that point, you know, it's going up to 200,000 and we try to just split it, you know, evenly. So if there's three or four of us, we just kind of go and just split it evenly across the board and, and make it work that way, you know? That's usually the way that it goes, you know, depending on the funding or funders, you know, they may have different terms that require us to be a little bit more flexible. 
we try to make it as equitable as possible, you know. Um, and again, the goal with like these subdivision projects is to really at least double the value of the property based on its current value. Um, that way we're just, you know, able to kind of let everybody, you know, benefit from that kind of situation. And what are the costs? So if, let's say you acquire it 100, you sell for 200. Is it mostly attorney's fees or? No, in, in a lot of cases, there's the certain types of subdivisions that you can do in certain states where all you really need is a land surveyor and you don't even need an attorney. You don't even need to go through a, a lengthy you know, review process or anything like that. And so the costs can be really, really minimal where you have that as your acquisition costs and you may have a land surveyor to pay that's maybe five, ten thousand $10,000 at most, something like that, to get um, a, a meets and bounds description put together. And then it goes and gets recorded at the county, you know, and it is pretty simple in some in some instances. How long does it typically take? For those really, really simple ones, you know, once you get the surveyor out there, the whole thing can be done in the matter of a couple months. Wow. And the risks are that there's just, you end up holding it because something changes and a buyer doesn't materialize. Is, is that the risk? A, B, and B, are there other risks? And C, is it easy to mitigate that in advance of the acquisition to know that maybe you could even have a buyer identified, et cetera? Right. So I would say that you definitely want to try to work at identifying a buyer or potential buyers, you know, you know as early on in the process as you possibly can. Um, just for the sake of being able to have more certain demand. But the other thing we do too is we try to go into markets that, you know, have some supporting data that really justify us being there in the first place. So I try to, you know, invest with as much momentum as I can. So for example, I'll look at markets that have demonstrated job growth over the last year or two. Um, I'll look at markets that have demonstrated housing shortage, at least right now in today's market, that's where I'm looking. And so if I find areas that have high job growth and also you know, significant housing shortage, then I know that I'm in a place that, okay, this is at least on a market level, this is a place I want to be looking. And then from there, I'm starting to look at where the path of growth actually is. And so once I can identify a path of growth within a job growth and housing shortage market, then I'm feeling really good about the location that I'm at. And that's really like the first initial things that we do to kind of mitigate some of that concern over whether or not I'm going to have demand at the end of it. And in terms of like the buyers that you're acquiring property from, are they unaware that what they're sitting on has a higher and better use? And or even if they do, they just don't want to screw around with the entitlement process because... Like you said, a lot of developers don't want to deal with it unless they're, you know, huge, you know, Chair Horton. Yeah, it's a combination of both, you know. So you'll have some people that understand what there's a potential there in their property. They just don't want to deal with it. And so they just want to get rid of it. That does happen, of course. And then there are people that realize that potential and maybe they're asking, you know, some sort of at least high market value or, or premium or something along those lines. And in those situations, something else that we'll do is we'll actually JV with the actual landowner themselves. Mm -hmm. And so just for simplicity's sake, you know, if they say that the market value of their property today is $100,000 existing, and but we know that we can double that value, we'll use that, that landowner as kind of our JV partner and we'll go in and do the same process, but then we're gonna split the deal accordingly. So maybe we'll just split the upside you know, with them. So if it's $100,000 on the upside, we'll split that with the actual property owner in some way. Maybe it's not 50-50, maybe it's more in our favor. But the point being is that they get, at the end of it all, they get what they were asking and then even more on top of that, 
And so it becomes a win-win situation in those kind of circumstances. I see. That sounds pretty cut and dry win-win. When, when you say, Mike, we, who's the we in that? Yeah, the we is just mainly, mainly myself, you know, but when other people might be like, um, if I have another person on the team that's like a you know, an acquisition person or, or somebody like that, or like even if it's, um, it's really just maybe more referring to anybody that happens to be on the team. A lot of, kind, a lot of times, if I'm doing a JV situation, it's not gonna really include anybody other than the property owner and myself, because it's just not necessary. Um, but if I'm doing something where I'm kind of uh, partnering with somebody that's really more acting as like an acquisition arm, then they'll be kind of cut into that sometimes as well. And then in terms of markets, you kind of described, you know, some of the, you know, intuitive things, growing market population, growth, income growth, job growth, et cetera. You know, you're in Santa Clarita moving back to Texas. Are you, and you said it's kind of like because of the opportunity there, do you envision most of the deals that you'll be doing are going to be near where you're moving? Or is this something that you could just do anywhere i mean what's the what's the thinking there yeah i think it's certainly easier you know if you have your own feet on the ground just from a variety of perspectives you know being able to make local connections you know um, being able to see the actual property itself being able to be more a little bit more hands-on in the process i don't think that's necessary at all to be able to be successful doing this i think it's helpful it's helpful if not you if it's somebody else you know but in a lot of circumstances you could do these projects and just have like a civil engineer on your team that'll be really your key person. You know, they'll be the one running the subdivision, for example. They'll get it all approved. If you happen to be in a subdivision situation where you, um, it's a little bit more of an intense subdivision and it requires a public hearing or something like that, that civil engineer will oftentimes represent you at the public hearing. And so if it's not you, it definitely needs to be somebody else. But, you know, all that said, you know, for me, you know, at least my preference, you know, I do like the idea of, you know, doing some of them that are a little bit closer to home. But that said, you know, I've worked on projects, you know, in Florida, Georgia, Texas, you know, kind of all over. To back up for a sec, and because this is super intriguing to me, because it's, it's a size and scale that you know, something that, you know, even I could participate in, right? Does, you don't have to be a big private equity firm or have a, you know, you're talking about an an amount of money that's accessible to a lot of people. And so I'm envisioning if you acquire something for a hundred and inevitably some more, I understand that, but it sounds to me like it's, these are small lots of land and you talk about subdivisions. it, It feels small to me. Is that intentional? Is that just where you play? Or is that kind of like the capital you have access to or what's the probably a little bit of all of it but i I think mainly it's it's intentional because i guess this is my preference in that i don't want to play with like the big subdivision builders you know i don't want to compete with them um i don't want to play in a lot of that and in some instances too it's because the regulations in some areas are going to be so intensive that the process ends up being costly the process ends up being really really long that's nothing wrong with that. It's a more of a preference thing. And so for me, again, knowing what I know, knowing what questions to ask and finding the, the little niches and nuances, I can operate again in these pockets where I can achieve the things that I'm trying to achieve without actually having to go through what I would say is an onerous process. You know, there will be processes to the things that I'm doing, of course, 
but it's not so um, intensive that it's a, it steers me away. There are some things that are like that, though, and that's kind of where my intention comes in. I just don't want to play in that environment if I don't have to. You're underneath the radar. I love it. So, so how do you find uh, the deals to buy? Right. So uh, there's a few ways. I mean, the way that I, the ways that I do it really more often than not is really by um, referral. You know, I get um, brokers that I've worked with in the past, you know, that will send deals. Um, so I get a lot of it coming that way. Some of it will be um, investors that I've worked with in the land space, you know, and they'll bring stuff to me that way too. Um, I've done the direct mail thing in the past. I don't really do it anymore. And I think it's just because I, I have enough deals coming to me through these other, you know, other mechanisms that I don't do it. I'm not necessarily opposed to the direct mail thing, but if I don't have to do it, I, I'd rather not just because I don't want to, it's just a preference thing too. It's like, I don't really want to have the, the infrastructure in terms of staffing and everything like that necessarily. But also too, the, I think the honest truth is because I kind of came up in this, you know, working for city planning. And in that sense, you know, I was working with brokers and architects and engineers and all of those type of people. That's the kind of people that I'm used to talking to and, and comfortable with. So if I had a preference, I'd rather be talking with those individuals rather than talking to mom and pop landowner and trying to work out a deal with them. I, you know, if I'm working with a broker, I know that the seller wants to sell. And the other thing too, I think this is a really big, big takeaway and the difference is, is that as a typical land investor, you know, I have to make my money by buying as low as I possibly can. And what I'm saying is, is that I can buy up to market value and still make money because I'm adding my value on the back end. And I think that's the, the key distinction is that if you're only making money, you know, by buying low, it forces you into doing certain things. But if you can also add value on the back end, then it opens up things a little bit more where you can actually not necessarily have to rely on direct mail or whatever else if you don't want to. And I never advocate for somebody to stop doing it. I'm just saying that it's not necessary if you don't want to. That sounds just a lot easier. <laughs> so yeah. There's enough meat on the bone. It's almost like a different model. Not that they're not running. Not, like you said, it's not like you, you don't benefit from buying it cheaper or less expensive. It's just there's so much there's probably more upside just in repurposing than, you know, just going, oh, I'm going to find somebody that's dust, you know, that wants to get rid of it. I'm going to flip it and make five grand. It's a different play. And that sounds interesting. Like you said, the whole thing's more professional. So what would you say is the hardest part of what you do? You know, I think the hardest part is probably, you know, when you're working with the different jurisdictions. And, and working through, you know, some of those issues that it's sometimes it's not cut and dry. Sometimes um, it gets political at times. And that's one of the reasons why I don't deal with, I try not to deal with some of the bigger type projects because sometimes the politics gets involved, you know, and it's like maybe like a planning commissioner lives, you know, in the area and has an issue with that property or, you know, whatever it happens to be, there's some political element to it that becomes challenging sometimes. So that's the most challenging part of it is when it's not just this cut and dry, um, meet the standards, you know, understand the code, you know, but when you get the personalities and politics involved, sometimes that's what the more troubling part. So, and you kind of alluded to that earlier as well, in terms of dealing with bigger properties and you, you referred earlier to like regulations as part of the process and, you know, and difficulty of once you kind of go bigger and is that just because bigger properties it just gets you know like you said politically it just 
gets on more people's radar because you've got the big bad wolf making a ton of money, whereas the smaller deals, they just don't react as much because I, I can't imagine the process or the rules and, and laws are different. Like, am I hearing this right? Is this an accurate assessment? I think you are. I think you are hearing it exactly right. You know, when you're in smaller deals or maybe you're in like a little bit more you know, semi-rural areas, you know, you fly under the radar more, you know, the regulations are set up so that you can't go and build like a, you know, a multi-story, multi-family building in the middle of a semi-rural area. You're not going to be able to do that, obviously, but you can still do projects in those areas and make really good money and, and kind of fly under the radar, you know? And again, as you get to these other areas and more urbanized settings, you're more visible. There's more people around you that your project can potentially impact. And so it becomes, you know, a little bit more um, daunting. But what's really important is to really understand, I think one of the more key thresholds for me is that if anything I do has to require a public hearing before the planning commission or city council, it steers me away a little bit. I'm not, I'm not as interested. I'll still do it. You know, I'll still go through it if I have to, for sure. But if there's an opportunity to do a project where I can kind of fly under the radar, still add value and not have to go through that process, that's what I'm going to go and do. And so in order to do that, though, you really have to understand the zoning and land use parameters within that jurisdiction. I said, dude, you know, it's funny because you, you really come at this from a different background than I think pretty much anybody I've podcasted with in, in, in terms of specifically what you're doing, you're probably more qualified to do what you're doing based on what you've been doing than, than anybody else, because you've been on the inside and know all the inner workings of how this kind of, of the entire process, which is, I'm just laughing because I, yes, I have a public hearing. That's the line for me. And I ain't doing that because you've seen that. So Look, I love what you do, and, and you've just uh, taken the big plunge to to hang your shingle. You know, uh, God bless, man. I have learned so much from you. How would uh, Mike? How would one uh, engage you, or you know, get get a hold of you to to have a conversation and you know see see more about what you're doing? Yeah, you know, the best way is just to go to my website, uh, TolosaPropertyGroup.com. T O L O S A PropertyGroup.com. And you'll I'm good on there. You can find out all about us. You know, if it's something that you're interested in, you can schedule a, fi- a free 15 minute call and I can talk to you about how what we do can dovetail into what you're doing right now. What's the term Telosa mean? That's yeah, it's funny. There's um out here in California, there's a, a winery that my wife and I love to go to. It's um, in San Luis Obispo and it's um, called Telosa, um, yeah, Telosa Winery, I guess it is. And so um, it's a name, the Telosa name actually comes from the name of the mission in San Luis Obispo. So if you're familiar with California, obviously missions and everything like that, the mission in San Luis Obispo is uh, San Luis Obispo de Telosa. And so that's where that comes from. I see. We, we were in slow uh, last summer we drove through and it's gotten, it's such a cool town, man. God, yeah. San Luis Obispo, just love it. Um, Well, listen, I I appreciate it so much, and I look forward to being uh, in further dialogue with you. I appreciate it. All right, Roger. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye.